Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Ghana's Podcast. My name is Alexander, your host, and today I am joined by Dr. Tim. Thanks for coming on today, man. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. We were uh, just talking for a little bit off air, and this is my first podcast I've interviewing in like the last couple of weeks. So it feels like really refreshing. I was doing like four or five a week. So this feels um, really fun, but kind of just tell people who you are and, and, and what you do. God, the four or five a week sounds exhausting, man. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That's like a, that's like a year's worth of conversation. I know I was just hammering them out and you know, I have like 20, I haven't released yet. It's a nice pad, but I'm starting to slow down, which is kind of nice. Yeah, there's this big like if uh, Tim Ferriss had a really good podcast like a month or two ago about how to podcast. And one of the things he talked about was like batching recording just because you you sort of get into a rhythm and you can find your flow. But then and, and I've done that before for me and Michelle Boland's podcast. But like then you easily fall off the other side where it's that then it just becomes incredibly stagnant and you're not stoked on it anymore. So yeah. I'm, I'm glad that we got a little bit of break before this one. Yeah, um, me too. my name is Tim Richard. I'm a doctor of physical therapy, strength conditioning coach, personal trainer. Based in Denver, I uh, own my own practice, Rich Heart Performance and Rehabilitation. I'm up in the northeast corner of Denver, Colorado. Um, in Denver, I do in-person physical therapy, uh, in-person personal training. Those are the two big services. I also do a little bit of group coaching for the gym I'm located in, which is Colorado Fitness and Strength. Put a little plug in there. And then remotely, I do some professional mentorship, some remote physical therapy, um, my big, my big two remote products are a monthly running programming where I design, um, every two weeks, we kind of design a micro cycle of running training. So I'm a former competitive runner, um, current kind of, you know, just trying to not get fat and out of shape type of runner. Um, and then I also do some remote programming where I des- I, you know, design a comprehensive strength conditioning program for four weeks, depending on a client's goals and equipment availability and all that good stuff. I love that. So you're extremely busy. And so what is like an actionable tip you have for staying really concise and and on your schedule? It sounds like you have so much going on. Oh my God. I thank you so much for asking me this. This is like, this is like the biggest area of development of the past two years. Cause, (laughs) um, when I, you know, right when I got out of physical therapy school about seven years ago, was, had a little bit more free time, had a little bit more leeway and how to structure and schedule things. So I have a, I have Google calendar, which is not earth shattering. Nope. And I make sure that all of my long-term obligations are in there. But then what I do is the day before. So today is we're recording on December 1st. I hope that's okay for me to say. Yeah. So yeah. The, the, the evening of November 30th, I have a yellow post-it note and I go through the day's agenda and I have certain things that recur every day. And I just organize my day according to this two inch by two inch yellow post-it note. And I'm not allowed to take on any additional tasks throughout the day. Um, I am allowed to reschedule things, but basically as soon as I write this down, I have a tangible way that allows me to structure my time. And I'm, I'm big into like that dopamine hit that you get when you yeah. accomplish tasks where you mark so it's like a, off. And obviously there's a podcast, people can't see it, but like, you know, we're, we're only about three hours into my day, but I have like a, a fourth of these things scratched off already. So I've, <laughs> oh I've been up since gosh. I've been up since 5am. It's been a very productive morning thus far. Those are the best mornings. And so is that something you do every single night on that two by two is just, you write out 
the little micro events you have within your day? And does that include like clients you have or are the clients and other types of stuff commitments on the schedule on Google calendar? So everything goes to the post-it note and even like, cause I have a home office and then I have, I have where I'm currently speaking to you, which is my clinical office, which conveniently is only like three miles away from my home office. But yeah. like, I'll write down what time I need to leave home to get to the clinical time. I'll write like if I'm bringing my dog or not, like right now, Molly is with me in the <laughs> office. So like, I'll kind of make all those decisions the day before so that, that during the day I can just focus on executing. And the big reason that I started to do this was as my business picked up and as my schedule got more and more demanding, the, like getting my own workouts in was the thing that was getting squeezed yeah. or like cooking dinner, like things that were really, really important to me. So I'm like, I need, like, I need to be hyper efficient and hyper effective with how I'm organizing my time to make sure like I'm getting my training in to make sure I'm able to cook my meals. Cause I know if I don't do those things, I became, I, I become a way less effective physical therapist, trainer, way less, you know, good dog, dad, worse husband, all those things. Yeah. So are, are you saying that by kind of employing the simple strategy, it's really helped you maximize what you are already doing, like the meal prepping, the lifting, are you finding time to get those, those things that mean a lot? into like your, your everyday practice. Yeah. And, and it removes the stress of like it being 6am and I'm like, shit, I don't know when I'm going to work out today. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I work with a, a nutrition coach and, um, I'm big on like, I will meal prep, but I don't like eating like four day old ground beef. So it's more like two day old or whatever. And one day she was <laughs> just like, yo, I know you wake up early. You just need to cook in the morning, like cook your stuff in the morning instead of like at lunch or like at dinner. Um, cause you, again, Alexander, you're up like at five 30 or 6am every morning and you don't go into work until two to three hours later, maybe like maximize your time. Right. And so I started to do that, but it's really interesting how, if you look at your daily practices, you can find ways to manipulate, manipulate your day and I guess maximize your output. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, it's, it's those things that are really integral to people's health and wellness that tend to be the first things that we chuck when life gets a little bit busy and chaotic. So having some, and you know, it's like not everybody needs to do my serial killer post-it note shit, <laughs> but it, but it works for me. I think it works for me especially well. Cause it's like a tangible thing that I carry around. Like yeah. it's in my pocket or it's on my desk or it's in my car. And as I complete things, I just scratch them out and I'm like, fuck yeah, I'm getting things done. And I know that if I just continue to execute like today at four o'clock, I'm going to get to work out. And that's like, for me, that's a little carrot. Yeah. I love that. I love that, man. And so again, you're up to a lot. You are a physical therapist, a personal trainer, strength and conditioning coach. I, I love physical therapists that have this sort of background. Um, I feel that, so I'm 27 now, but I feel like sort of going through school and everything, um, maybe it's just because I wasn't in the industry. I just always thought physical therapists did physical therapy. So I love that there's like more physical therapists out there now that can actually prescribe movement as well and work with their clients. Um, how do you mesh all of those models together to serve your clients? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's an excellent question. So let me take a couple steps back. Um, I, I grew up in a family where both of my parents were involved in like the medical and healthcare spaces. So that was, that was, that was kind of the lens. And I think growing up, there was, there was some pressure for me to become a doctor, like a medical doctor. <laughs> um, 
And I remember my dad was always pushing for me to become a physical therapist. And I, he, he was a director of pharmacy for a nursing home in New York. And I remember like going to work with him when I was a teenager and I was a, I would act as a physical therapy aide. And I think his rationale was like, these guys make okay money, but their schedules are super regular. They're just basically paid to do exercise all day long. Like, it seems like a really, really good gig. I remember I got there and it was just so, I mean, granted, it was also a nursing home, but it was so clinical. Um, it was so repetitive. I, I remember leaving those experiences. I'm like, I never want to be a fucking physical therapist. Yeah. Like this, this is, and actually that I, I like repivoted to um, like, you know, more like medical doctor stuff or even like psychology type stuff. And it wasn't until I'm going somewhere with this. Don't worry. <laughs> it, it, it wasn't until, uh, so in college I was, uh, was a competitive runner, middle distance athlete, but I ended up getting into CrossFit like 2008, 2009, kind of when I was like a, a junior and there was like, there's a guy named Kelly Sturette. Yeah. At, Kelly Sturette. Yeah. 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 Um, he wrote a book called becoming, a, becoming, becoming the supple leopard, becoming a supple leopard. Yeah. It's uh, but, called supple leopard. Yeah. 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 Um, he was, he came out with these, and this was like when YouTube was kind of like first starting to come up, but every day he would post these 10 minute YouTube videos on how to improve certain CrossFit positions, right? Like let's improve ankle dorsiflexion. Let's, let's improve squat depth. Let's improve ability to get overhead. And that was really useful to me because I, I, I was really into CrossFit, but like my mobility absolutely sucks. So I was like, always oh, getting these aches and pains and shit. And I realized like, oh my God, that like this guy's a physical therapist. Like this guy is also doing physical therapy. Uh, and it was so removed from the way that I had experienced physical therapy um, in, in a nursing home as a physical therapy aide. But even as an athlete going through physical therapy, it was very clinical. It was very like, you know, I'm going to ultrasound this thing. And yeah, all, all we're treating is the, is the ankle. So for the first time, Kelly Sturette kind of showed me like, wow, we can kind of take this big picture viewpoint and we can use physical therapy exercises and stretches to improve what we're doing in the weight room to improve output. And I kind of fell in love with that and immediately pivoted back to physical therapy, probably making my dad very, very happy. That um, is cool. And so when I did that, I remember I emailed Kelly and like credit to him because he was a busy guy even then. And I asked would you recommend becoming a CrossFit coach first or becoming a physical therapist first? And he, he like sent, sent me an email right back. It was like 25 minutes. And he's like, be a CrossFit coach for a couple of years, then go to physical therapy school. Oh, wow. And, uh, so that's, that's what I did. I, I coached CrossFit for the last couple of years of college. And then I went to physical therapy school. And I think doing things in that order made a lot more sense to me. Cause I had a lens of, I had a lens through which to view movement yes. and then I could layer physical therapy on top of that versus the physical therapy lens for, for viewing movement and all due respect to all physical therapists and physical therapy programs. It's kind of shit. Like it's, it's very, Oh, you have an injured knee. We're going to look at knee range of motion and isolative knee strength. And that's like really ignoring this beautiful symphony that that is the human body. Thank you. Yes, that is so well put. And that's, again, I think that's why I ascribe to PRI, which is Postural Restoration Institute. So I'm always looking at, you know, center of gravity or where the rib cage is and alignment to the pelvis. And, but like you said, that beautiful symphony, that is the body and, and the antiquated model of like, you know, maybe a physical therapy school approach where, all right, the knee is hurt. So we're just going to look at the knee as opposed to, okay, what else is the rest of the body doing? 
Yeah, and I would I would even go as far as to say that I don't think personal trainers and physical therapists are really that different at all in what they're trying to achieve. It's just that in 2021 in the, in the United States, when a person has a medical diagnosis that explains their pain, the only practitioner that can intervene on that in a specific way is a licensed physical therapist. But I think that both professions are concerned with improving systemic range of motion. Both are improved. Both are concerned with improving motor control. Both are improved to some extent with increasing muscle mass, improving endurance. Like we're trying to sort of solve the same big picture problems. Maybe physical therapists have just a little bit deeper of a skill set to use to try to solve those problems. But there's a lot of trainers that I would rather refer people to that are in pain than physical therapists. Yeah, I, I got to say, I, I completely agree with that as a, as a coach and a trainer out here in Austin. I know a slew of, of coaches that I do trust where they look at certain things in a certain way that I know makes sense and uh, where I would rather refer out to them. I, I just think that's interesting. What do you, where do you see the, the future of like training and physical therapy? Do you find that those in the future are going to start to enmesh a little bit more? Uh, what's your ideal look at on collaboration between those two professions? Yeah. Well, I think I have probably have two views. Like I have an optimistic, what I'd like to happen. And then the pessimistic, what I think, what I think might happen. Um, I'll, I'll start with the pessimistic one. I, I think that the field of physical therapy as it's been practiced is going in a really, really troubling direction. Um, I think that reimbursement rates are not, uh, kind of keeping up with inflation and, or they're going down. There is more physical therapy programs, physical therapy programs, you know, to get your doctorate degree are becoming more and more expensive. So you have like kind of a, a flooding of the market with new physical therapists combined with from insurance, very little money going into reimburse for those services. Um, so I think that what we're going to see with conventional physical therapy clinics is more and more utilization of physical therapist assistance, physical therapy aids, kind of these like lower level um, practice extenders, I believe is what they're called. And that's going to ultimately lead to worse and worse service from conventional physical therapy clinics. That's the pessimistic view. The optimist, oh, and I think along with that, you're going to get further and further divorced from being able to actually intervene on a lot of these lifestyle factors that might make really, really uh, important, longstanding change with patients. So I think the optimistic viewpoint is you see people like, you know, we were talking about Zach couples uh, yeah. before we started recording, like, you know, these, these hybrid strength conditioning coach, physical therapists that are really, really concerned with taking this big 30,000 foot view of what are all the ways that I can affect health outcomes within a client. And let's attack all of them because I'm not attached to an insurance system that's going to limit what I'm going to be able to do. Or that's going to be able to say like, Hey, what you were doing was fitness, not physical therapy. We're not going to pay for that. Yeah. So I think, I think as a response to the quality of care, getting lower and lower in the conventional physical therapy establishment, you're going to see a rise of the Zach couples, Mike Camperini's David Gray's, you know, I'm not even going to put myself in that. I was going to say, you should throw yourself in there, but, but, but people that do what we do, because there's a lot of people out there that are hungering for something that's a little bit robust, deeper, more effective. Yeah. And I, I love that you bring up Zach and uh, David Gray and a couple of others, because it's almost like what y'all are doing is all almost very similar, but the approaches and the looks looks different. So 
one thing I really like about you is your, your training content, like the stuff that you're doing, you're doing lots of running plyometrics, explosive movements. And then I could look at Zach couples and it looks completely different. It's more cable stuff. You know, there's like TRX stuff thrown in there, but it's all achieving some of the same outcomes. And that's what I like is it's this more, you know, they're taking such a wide lens. They're, they're getting down to the details. They're really serving people um, in different approaches. And, and so that's, that's, again, I hope that's where that, that goes in the future. Um, and also at the root of that too, it sounds like people are working for themselves too. Yeah, I mean, I, absolutely. And I think that's a double-edged sword. Cause I, I don't think, I don't think everybody's cut out to be an entrepreneur and a practice owner. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of times, yeah, I mean, certainly the skill set that makes you a great uh, clinician or practitioner does not automat- automatically make you a great practice owner. But I think that there is a lot of that. And I think that, I mean, even look at what David Gray's done. Like I, I knew David, I think in 2018, so I've known him for three years at this point, and he has a couple employees now that that do similar things mm. to what he does that also operate outside of the insurance, you know, insurance jail or whatever you want to call it, insurance <laughs> prison. So it's like he, he has uh, people that he's trained to be great practitioners that also can deliver that type of thing. And I'd like to see that uh, be the direction that the field of physical therapy and fitness kind of go in together is more of a rise of these combined practitioners that exist outside of an insurance model that mm. can really get a person what they actually need to make sustainable long-term changes in their health. Yeah, no, I, I, I like that. And I don't know why I've never really thought of it that way, but yeah, like a blended model of like, you know, a physical therapy company that also has a couple of like trainers on staff. And, and, and now you're really combining the models outside of like the, the insurance model. Cause I, I do think that there's a lot of, you know, gatekeeping that happens. I've had on quite a few physical therapists onto the podcast already. And something they always mention is just the, the difficulties of dealing with insurance and co-pays and things like that. Yeah. And, and you end up, you know, 10 to 30, or more percent of your day is spent doing documentation and chase chasing down insurance reimbursement. And that's time that you could spend developing your craft, making a better product for your people. Um, I, I do think that's why so many great clinicians end up going into business for themselves. Yeah. And so what are, how long have you been working for yourself with your own clinic? And then, um, yeah, what are some of the challenges you face as being kind of like an entrepreneur, but also like some of the, the rewards um, that you've gotten? Yeah, so I, I graduated physical therapy school in 2015. I've had my own business in some way, shape or form since 2016. So I was wow. pretty quick right off the bat to do yes. something. Um, but I've, I've pretty much always had another either full or part-time job to kind of give me some stability, um, you know, and just, you know, make sure that there is, there's money coming in every two weeks or every four weeks. Thank you. Well, I want to get your opinion on that in a second, but keep going. I'm sorry. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I read a lot of like physical therapy, entrepreneur type stuff. I think uh, Danny Matei at cash based PT puts out a lot of great content, but he talks about, there's like two ways to do the going into business for yourself. There's what's called the burn the ship strategy where it's just like, all right, fuck ever being an employee. <laughs> like I'm going to, I'm just going to go all in and that can work. And that's probably going to lead to much faster growth, but not everybody has the capital to be able to finance their own lives for three 
three months or six months. And I certainly have never, never been in that position. And I'm, I don't, I don't think I have the risk tolerance for that, to be honest. Um, so I've, I've always had like, this is probably the past year has been the only year of my life where my business is the predominant source of income. Up until that point, there there had always been, like I said, something part-time or something full-time that was supplementing income. So I, I kind of think that's, you know, if anyone's listening out there that's thinking about going into business for themselves, like do it in the easiest possible way. Okay. I like that. And then what were some of the the things that you were doing to kind of supplement the income, like on the side where you, uh, what, what other stuff were you dealing with? So again, when I, when I started like that, my own business was the, was the side hustle. Right. Yeah. Um, but as a, as a physical therapist, the really easy thing that you can do. And again, I would recommend this to any physical therapist looking to start like a cash-based side hustle, go be a home health physical therapist. Cause it, it, the pay is good. It's incredibly flexible. It's not very demanding and it'll allow you to like shift things around. So that is what I did from 2018 to, uh, well, I'm, I'm ending this week actually, and then going in to do some things with some technology companies, which I'm very excited about, but um, for you over here in Austin, Texas, <laughs> Avery, yeah, Austin, Texas, like the new hotbed of all technological innovation. Oh my gosh. It's, it's crazy. It's, I think it was going to happen regardless, but I think COVID really just amplified the pace at which everything was happening. And so now you have these huge companies expanding here and it is kind of like the new Mecca of technology. And so we were speaking off air too, like I'm, I'm looking at research and, um, and, and technology companies. And so, yeah, that's my big thing too, is in this profession, it's great working for yourself, but it's also nice to know what it is to like make, you know, what money's coming in every two weeks basically. And as a trainer, it's, it's kind of tough. It's fluctuates every month and you can do your projections and everything, but still like, I would love to know it's coming in every two weeks, basically. Oh yeah. I think, I think that's the best way to do it. And if you can, if you're really passionate about developing your own business, try to find something that's as lucrative as you need it to be, but really flexibility is going to be the key. Cause if you're trying to develop your own thing, but five days a week, you're tied up from 8am to 6pm, like good luck. Yeah, man. I remember this was up until June, you know, I finished grad school in 2017. What's your dog's name, by the way? Molly. Molly. That's so cute. Um, we're, on, we're on bully stick number two. <laughs> yeah, it was 2017. I finished grad school and then um, I got a job at a, a gym training and uh, I trained there from like November of 2019 to June of 2021. So almost two years. And uh, I was working at Lululemon at the same time. I was working for kind of like another training company out here. So I had up to three to four jobs. Oh, I was also running my own business too. And then in June, I just like quit everything. I was like, all right, I'm just going to work for myself. And I know where I want to get in research, but like the only way I can kind of get there is by maximizing my time that I have in my schedule. So I'll just work for myself. It's been really scary, but it's also been really cool to start a podcast, to add things to my resume. Like I'm an entrepreneur now and I'm learning all these skills. So, but yeah, it's, it's kind of scary at the same time. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I think just building off what you said, and again, not, not to make this a podcast about Zach couples, but <laughs> he uh, gave me a book by Scott Adams called, I think how to fail at everything and still win big. And one of the big, one of my big takeaways from that, from that book was that uh, Scott's a big fan of energy management over time management. 
So trying to build your day in ways that most of what you do gives you more energy and kind of gives you more stoke as opposed to drains energy. And granted, like that's not, you know, you, you can't have everything that you do in a given day be something that's just like awesome that you're really, really happy, happy to be doing. But I know for myself, like when I'm honestly with the home health physical therapy, working with the patients most of the time does give me energy because it's, it's person to person interaction. You're making a difference, but it's like the driving is brutal. The documentation is brutal. The meetings are brutal. So like, there's a, there's a lot in the day of a home health (laughs) physical therapist. That's going to rob you of energy. Most of what I do for my own business, including seeing clients kind of gives me more stoke. I mean, this, you know, carving time out of my schedule to talk with cool people like you, like that's going to give me more energy going through my day. So it's like, you know, of course it's always time management. Of course the post-it note thing is useful, but I do think this notion of like, if you're someone that's again, like thinking about going out on their own or pivoting to something different, like what's actually giving you energy and making the day feel like it just kind of flies by. I love that. And I, I, yeah, that's such a great point. And for me, one of those things is like, like a little morning walk, like it's 10, 15 minutes, but man, I feel great. I feel refreshed, but yeah, I think that's a good point of identifying things that you can kind of throw in throughout your day that kind of give you energy. Um, and then that kind of propels you towards the next day. And that's just kind of like this perpetuating cycle of healthy habits and behaviors. Yeah. And if you can, I mean, again, to make, not to make it all about business, but making it all about business. Like if you can find things that feed into the business that you're trying to create, that you, that you really enjoy doing, that's fantastic. Cause probably if you enjoy doing it, you're going to do more of it. You're going to get really, really good at it. Maybe it becomes your superpower. Like for Zach, uh, what he does with human matrix is his course, but his, his podcast has a different name that escapes me right now. But like he, you could tell, like, he just really, really loves being on air yeah, and yeah. being like this, this wild and crazy kind of goofy Zach couples. Like he has a character <laughs> that he likes. So it's like, you, you can tell, like he probably like he, well, I know he enjoys doing that. Like he looks forward to doing that. And that's something that has helped him develop this business, developed various products he's put out, developed this course. And that's really, really cool. Yeah. Have you gone to his human matrix by chance? I'm not sure if you even need to, but, um, have you, have you experienced it? Uh, I've, I've never officially taken it. I've, um, he's been kind enough to give me the, um, like the course handout a couple of times. Yeah. Uh, and we talked about, uh, having me as like a, a TA or something, but no, I've, I've never, I've never made it to one of his courses, but Zach's great. I, I highly recommend the course and I highly recommend anyone work with Zach. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm so stoked to have him on, uh, next week. And the, the way I kind of found out through, about him was, so I was in Lucy Hendricks, like, um, basically cohort mentor group. Uh, and one of her first ones. And then, you know, you just eventually start to hear about Zach couples and all that. So um, really great people. I kind of want to pivot a little bit. I want to talk about some like fitness myths or just things we see all the time. One of the the first few posts I saw on your Instagram that really resonated with me was the clamshells one where you kind of broke it down as to why they may not be the most useful for people and may not be getting the results that people want. Um, could you just kind of walk through your rationale of what the clamshell is and maybe what a a better alternative is for, for people that are looking for a larger, butt? I guess. Yeah. Well, I think you just said it really well. It's like, I think there's two predominantly two reasons that people do clamshells one, because they've been popularized as a way to get like glute hypertrophy and a bigger butt. That is an impressive Stein, my man. (laughs) This. Yeah, dude, my, my friend, Josh, his family lives in Germany. And when he went, 
he got me this cup from Germany. So now I just drink water out of it. It's huge. Uh, for the listener. Yeah. Alexander's drinking pro- <laughs> probably a half a gallon of water out of like a, uh, a Stein that belongs in Munich. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think people do clamshells because they either want a bigger butt or because their physical therapist tells them to do clamshells. And that might uh, have to do with some hip rehabilitation outcomes that might have to do with controlling knee position and squats. So I think that if we're going to, you know, kind of dismantle the clamshell, we have to be intelligent with, uh, you know, what is the reason that a person's doing a clamshell to begin with? So if it's in the case of glute hypertrophy, we got to look at the glutes and they every, and you know, this from, from your PRI studies, but all muscles have action in all three planes of motion, even ones that look that are conventionally taught to be like, okay, the, the butt does hip extension. Um, it's fiber. I mean, and the glute specifically is, is truly a triplanar muscle. If you look at like any anatomy app, or if, if the listener just wants to Google gluteus maximus, on Google images, like those, the fiber orientation is such that like it's coming down at a diagonal. So the glutes going to do extension, hip adduction and hip external rotation in order to load a muscle to the greatest possible degree. We need to make it as long as possible in all three planes of motion. So that would be Mm. hip adduction, hip flexion, hip internal rotation. And if we're trying to get the most muscle building stimulus, the most hypertrophic stimulus, we would ideally like to take that muscle through a, from a very, very long position to a very, very short position. So how do we get triplanar length to triplanar shortening? The issue with the clamshell in that regard is that we're never getting a long triplanar position. We're kind of starting from like a neutralish, sure. um, like a little bit of hip flexion, no hip adduction, no hip internal rotation. And then we're going to this maximally short glute position. So like an analog might be a bicep curl. And instead of starting with the elbow completely straight, we're starting with it at 90 degrees and kind of like curling past. So we're missing this opportunity to, to take a muscle through its full excursion and to load a muscle in that longest position, which is where you're going to get the most muscle damage and probably simulate the most hypertrophy. And then also to add on to that too, how much does applying load also help you achieve the hypertrophic effects? So like I have, if I'm doing the clamshells, you know, um, you know, one, I'm starting in that, that half position where I'm not really getting the lengthening and the shortening that I want to, to stimulate muscle growth, but also there's not really an external load I'm adding to. And so would that be a big piece that people would want to add as well? I mean, you could totally, you can externally load a clamshell and that, you know, you can, you could put mm. a band around there. Like if you're weird, you could put a kettlebell on your knee. Like it, it, it can I've be seen loaded. That actually, I've seen that actually, now that you mention it. Yeah, that would not surprise me at all if like the fitness <laughs> models of Instagram had figured that out. Um, no, but the thing is, so I think where you're going with this is like when we compare it to something like a deadlift or a split squat or a lunge, like something that is uh, weight bearing where your foot's in contact with the ground. Like, yeah, now we can both appreciate a long triplanar position of the glute max and get some load to that position. And I think the combination of those things when performed at volume is going to be huge. I'd also add, and again, with your PRI background, I I feel like you'd agree agree with me on this, but the ability of the foot to sense the ground and to have that sensation of pushing through the foot for me and pretty much everybody I manage, like that is a prerequisite for really feeling good glute contact. Yeah. So if we're just doing something in sideline where the foot's just hanging out in space, not even like anchored to a wall, 
I don't really know if we're ever going to get good glute max contraction just because your brain doesn't think that you're on that leg. And when you're on that leg, that's when your brain kind of knows to use that muscle. Yeah. And like, you can literally like kind of feel it as I push to the ground, I feel like the glute and everything. So that's a good point as well, that if you don't have that ground contact, again, your brain is kind of just like, all right, am I floating? Like what's going on? And then, you know, you're just kind of doing these clamshells. Um, that's an interesting point that you bring up. Yeah. And the, like the foot is so huge. Like if I'm trying to get, and I, I know we don't want, want to make this too biomechanically jargony, but like, <laughs> if I'm trying to get, uh, my butt muscle in the like sagittal plane, <clears throat> like hip extension kind of way, really feeling like that the heel transition to the ball of the foot is kind of like where that kicks on in that, like, like late mid stance, early late stance kind of thing. And then if I'm trying to get a butt muscle that rotates more like those external rotation fibers, it's a lot of like pushing through the inside edge and getting, getting the hips to rotate away from that foot. And that's like a late stance mechanic. So in both of those, like the foot's really fucking important. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) And good luck. Like, I don't know, good luck with like a donkey kick or like a clamshell where the foot's just hanging out in space. You might be making the muscle short, but there's something to the motor control out. Like your, your brain doesn't buy it. Your brain's like, (laughs) Hey, we're like, we're moving a leg, but like, we don't really need a butt muscle to do this. Like we need a butt muscle when the foot's on the ground. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And again, I, I think there's such a big misconception of if I feel my muscle kind of burn, then I'm, I'm giving it the optimal work. Um, but yeah, I don't think that could be any more further from the truth. So if anything, I would just say, find yourself in a good position where you're grounded and then move through those ranges of motion. Um, Oh yeah. And like in that Instagram post that you referenced, I think I gave a, a a standing hip airplane, which is like a, an old school Stu McGill exercise as an alternative. And like that, like, that's the thing, like you're going to get a hell of a butt burn there. You're going to work on pushing through the foot to get the hips to rotate away. Like I'm all, I'm totally fine with the muscle burning in that sense. You're actually appreciating a somewhat full triplanar, uh, lengthening and shortening. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I wanted to ask you too, something I really like and that I've been throwing personally into my training as well as some plyometrics. So whether they're depth jumps, their landings or their pogos, love pogos. And I coach with, um, a guy named Christian out here. Uh, he runs a company called durable athlete in Austin and we, we train athletes. Um, and so we're always doing plyometrics with them. What, uh, what, how would you define a plyometric for the people? Uh, and then why do you think they're beneficial for people to kind of throw into, their own training. Oh God. I feel like I'm going to really fuck up this textbook definition of plyometrics. I think a is anything that involves, uh, like the muscle tendon complex and a return of energy from the, the muscle tendon complex. So like an example would be, uh, a box jump where you're starting on the box, you step off and then you're dropping to the ground the second you hit the ground, we're going to have flexion of the ankles, knees, and hips. So if we're like kind of zooming in on what the Achilles tendon is doing as the ankle is flexing, that Achilles tendon is getting long at a certain point, you have what's called amortization where that tendon is no longer getting any longer. Mm-hmm. And then you get an explosive contraction of the ankles, the knees, and the hips, or an extension of the ankles, knees, and hips. 
and that propels you up. That's different than conventional weight room exercises where we have an eccentric and a concentric phase, but they're governed entirely by muscular action. And so you're just kind of making a decision with your own brain of like, okay, I'm stopping this movement now and now I'm reversing it. Or maybe, maybe you stop because you hit the end range of your joint or something. So in a plyometric, you're trying to make the, the transition between the lengthening and the shortening the right amount of time so that you get a lot of free energy return from the, from the tendons. And usually the big tendons, like when I think about plyos would be the Achilles and patellar. Yeah. And, and why would you say, or would you recommend plyometrics to just general population people? Yeah, that's what, I mean, I, I mainly deal with gen pop people. Um, nice. yeah. And I think that there's like, there's a couple, like, I don't know if we can, I don't know if we can call a depth drop a plyometric just because it doesn't have like a depth drop is more of like, let's practice the skill of landing, yeah. which I think is another really useful thing. Like it's, it's oh, yeah. essentially like an eccentric power drill. I think a lot of people misterm uh, power drills as plyometrics because I think you can like, like a box jump where you're starting on the ground is a power drill. It's not a plyometric. A, oh, a depth by, by that definition, I am totally screwing up all of these. Like, yeah. I consider like a plyo just where kind of like a jumper landing is incorporated. So I'm for sure chopping that up. <laughs> yeah. Well, and because I think the thing that you're trying to develop with a plyometric is a feel for the right amount of time that the foot needs to be on the ground to optimize energy, to optimize energy storage. Mm -hmm. So there's like a, if you take that case of a person standing on the box, they're going to, they're going to step off the box, hit the ground and then jump up maybe onto yeah. another box. Maybe they just jump up. If a person's too quick off the ground, the, that, that energy impulse won't be fully captured by that tendon and they're not going to get as high up. If they're uh, too long on the ground, that energy impulse is going to go into the ground and they're not, yeah. not going to get as high up. So it's like a, a true plyometric is like, how do we fine tune this interaction with the ground? You mentioned pogos in my mind, that's a true plyometric. Mm. Cause it's like, you're not cueing this just like rapid kind of striking up, like slapping of the ground. And you're certainly not cueing this landing every time yeah. you're like, all right, let's actually play around with this ground contact time. And I love that for my runners because especially in like the running injury prevention space, there's this big thing about reducing ground contact time mm -hmm. and having that be like the thing that prevents injury or improves performance. But you can't like the goal shouldn't be reducing ground contact time at zero. Like the, the foot needs to be on the ground just for the appropriate amount of time. And if we're trying to pick that foot up too quickly, we're not going to get a good energy return. We're not going to get good stride, stride length. So to answer your question, like, yeah, I absolutely apply metrics for both gen pop and performance oriented clients. And I think there's probably there's safer and less safe ways to incorporate them. Pogo hops being like an incredibly safe strategy. Oh yeah. Yeah. I love incorporating pogos for all my clients. Um, and really also, I think, uh, doc, you mentioned her earlier, Dr. Michelle Boland is such a, like a savant with all types of like hops and, and just things like that. Um, it's always kind of fun to see what she creates. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to text Michelle and let her know that someone called her a savant. Yeah, no, I actually need to reach out to her as well to bring her on the podcast. Cause I'm, I love talking to people that are smarter than me. And then a, a big reason I started this podcast was to close knowledge gaps um, for people. So bring on again, like industry Titans or leaders, and then like break down the jargon and then, you know, people learn stuff. Um, but yeah, I Michelle love... is, so Michelle is the co-host of the more train, less pain podcast, which is our baby. I saw that. And so when I was kind of looking up your, your, um, profile today to kind of formulate the, the questions I could send to you, 
I, I saw that y'all have a podcast. What is that about? Um, I went to the page to follow it. So I, I can't Appreciate wait to it. listen. Yeah, yeah. But like, what is the, the whole podcast called? And then what's it about too? Yeah. So it is more train, less pain, engineering, the adaptable athlete. Um, Love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, and it's, it's been fun. I think, I think we started it for a lot of the same reasons that you just said you started your podcast. Like really it's an excuse to talk to people that are smarter than us, that are legends in our field to maybe close some knowledge gaps. Um, but I think Michelle and I both have the goals of, you know, for the people that we work with, we want to, we're not looking to train like the fastest runners or the strongest lifters. We want people that are, uh, well-rounded in all areas, but really adaptable to whatever life throws at them. Mm. So, you know, maybe they want to go play basketball with their kid. Maybe they want to go ski. Maybe they want to go, if you're in Colorado, like hike a 14,000 foot mountain. So how do we develop a human being that's, that's resilient in a lot of different ways that can handle these, like, like doing cool things. And, you know, like personally, that's what me and Michelle are, are interested in. So the podcast is nominally about that. And then we just get to bring on people that we think are interesting and would be cool to talk to. No, that's, that's so cool. I, I love that y'all do that. Um, Cause I remember, gosh, it was probably in the height of quarantine, but that's when I found out about her. She, I think it was like rebel performance put on this big seminar thing. And she was one of the, you know, the presenters, like there was Dr. Mike Isertil, there was Pat Davidson, like all these people. And I was like, this is so cool. But uh, Dr. Dr. Bolins was what really struck me was her systems and just her frameworks that she had created to like optimize things. And I was like, whoa, like she is like next level on how she plans things. And so um, I'm sure you've gotten an inside look and in, into like how she kind of works. That's kind of cool. That, that's her superpower. Like, and, and I, I, she wouldn't mind me saying that, but like her ability to help people organize information that they already possess mm. in a meaningful way that makes sense to them. Like that is, she does like a group, group coaches classroom kind of thing every month or every quarter or something, but like, that's her thing. Like she really? loves that shit. That's the stuff that gives her energy. Okay, cool. Yeah. And I, I noticed it too. Cause so I have a, a master's in exercise physiology. And uh, while I was getting that, I, I took some like, um, like psychological courses, like, um, you know, public health and things like that. So you look at frameworks of like behavior change and that's what it reminded me of. Like she's creating frameworks to, again, understand this information, um, collect it and then kind of like, I guess, you know, share it in a way that makes sense. So I was like, damn, she's really good at this. Uh, let's see, what else did I want to ask you? what are some practical tips you have for someone that, that they want to be healthier, whether it's like movement, just like small considerations, um, or people that are always dealing with pain. What, what do you typically, this may be kind of hard to answer too, if you're not getting to look at this hypothetical person, but what are just some practical tips for starting a health and wellness journey? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, you know, like first and foremost, people are kind of plants, right? Like plants need very basic like physiologic things. So, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, our basic physiologic needs being met, like, are, are we sleeping at least seven hours a night? Is it decent quality sleep? Are we drinking enough water throughout the day? Um, we can probably start to like, look at diet at that point, but I would, I would say sleep is kind of the big thing and diet could be a lot of different things. I'm by no means an expert. I have nutrition people. I refer uh, folks, you know, out to, oh, yeah. I have a, I have a certain way that I eat 90% of the time that seems to work really, really well for me when I get away from that, like everything kind of falls off. Yeah. Um, so I, I mean, there's like a hierarchy, right? It's like, it's probably sleep 
then food. I would put daily activity then as like the third ladder of that pyramid. So it's like, are you, are you getting 10,000 steps in a day? If not, like, let's do that. Then I would put like a, like some kind of a mobility flexibility regimen on top of that. And only, only until all of those things have been sufficiently met would I then start to layer on like, all right, now we can do fitness. And oh, I, so I like that. So I think that's like, that's the misconception about like, you know, what I do and what you do is like, we're, we're like rah, rah about like people should be trap our deadlifting. Like, fuck no. Like, <laughs> but like most, most people in this country have not earned the right to trap our deadlift. Like there we're, we're making these far more rudimental, uh, rudimentary errors in basic physiology that, that ought to be like, let's throw energy at that. Let's throw dollars at that before we get into the nuances of like, is this a squatty deadlift or a hingy deadlift? Yeah, that's, that's such a good point, man. That's, that was so well said. Uh, because yeah. And what's great about all the things you said is they're within kind of like your control. A lot of it, um, diet may be the one that's not the most controllable due to finances and other variables, but like sleeping typically, or, or just kind of like walking a little bit more, um, and then being more cognizant of what you're putting in your body. Um, but these are things that people are already doing. It's not like you have to go out and buy this course or do this or that. These are things that you can kind of just start to actively pay more attention to. So I think that you, you bring up some really good points. Thank you. Um, and I, I think, you know, going back to like Michelle and her frameworks and behavior change, it's like you, if you're, if you have a habit of staying up till three in the morning, playing video games, eating Cheetos, and so you're consistently getting like three hours of really shitty sleep, you don't have to in one fell swoop go to like, all right, well, now I sleep in a completely dark room at 61 degrees while taking magnesium. And like, it doesn't have to get perfect. <laughs> Maybe just for a couple of weeks, instead of going to bed at three, you go to bed at one. Yeah. And you, and like, I think the, what's that old proverb? It's like the journey of 10,000 miles starts with one step or something, something like, that. like that. Yeah. So it's like, it's like, what's the highest leverage, easiest change I can make right now? Let's hold that constant for two or three weeks and then regroup, like poke your, poke your head out of the sand, look around, determine the next direction, and then take the next logical step. And that's, I think people really, really mess up. And, you know, this is, I don't know if you're going to record or release this before or after the new year, but like, this is where like new year resolutions completely go awry because people try to take these massive chunks of like, now I exercise 60 minutes, six days a week. What are you doing before? (laughs) Nothing, nothing at all. Like, oh, well, that's not going to fucking stick. (laughs) That's such a good point, man. And even to your point of like 10,000 steps, you know, if someone's getting like 800 steps a day, it would probably look more realistic if you could get 2,500 a day and do that for a couple of weeks. And then, all right, great. You did that. Let's graduate to 4,500 and slowly make your way up there. But yeah. Um, and because you mentioned that I'll make sure to release this before the new year's, just so people understand that you got to make it more tangible and, and realistic. And I, I, again, we always bring it up. We, you always hear about it with smart goals, as cheesy as it sounds. I think it's also like tried and true, um, you know, what is it? Specific, measurable, attainable, uh, realistic, timely. Yeah. 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 Thanks. Thanks for picking me up. But yeah, that's, that's what smart is. And so apply that when you're, you know, you're creating your goals. I wanted to ask you, what does an ideal day of fitness look like for you? Because you looks like you train a lot of different ways. There's like weightlifting again, there's pogos and plyos and stuff, and then there's running. So yeah, what's, what's your, Oh, there's also climbing. I see you climb as well. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, 
I, but before we get to that, I just want to mention this really quick. Cause it, I, uh, I took Pat Davidson seminar a couple of years ago. Yeah. Re- rethinking the big patterns. Or I think at the time it was rethinking the big patterns too, which I highly like that should be, that should probably be the curriculum of most like trainer education or strength conditioning education. Well, wow. neither here nor there, but I remember he talked <laughs> about working with a guy and the guy's goal was to get back to running and things have been going well. They've been making incremental change. The guy had like a lot of things to work on. And uh, the guy comes in one Monday like forlorn. He's like, you know, I tried running and it's just like this, this isn't, this isn't working. And like, not, and Pat's like, what, like, what, what did you, what did you do? And he's like, well, I, I went and tried to run 10 miles. And Pat's like, Pat was like, dude, you get like 4,000 steps a day. Why couldn't you have just done like a 10,000 step walk? Like that would have been the, so it's just like all that's by way of saying like people tend to be idiots by and large and making uh, rational decisions about how to progress their, you know, their current situation. And I think yes. they ended up working together and the guy ended up being able to run, but it's like to go from like never having run period, or like not running for two years to like a 10 mile run. Like that's a, that's a ridiculous thing to do. That might not seem ridiculous to that person at that point in time. No, it's, I couldn't agree more. And then also to kind of take that like idiot statement further is there's so many practitioners on our end as well that aren't breaking it down for the clients kind of like Pat did, where he's like, no, 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 don't go run 10 miles, do 10,000 steps first. So like, you know, you know, you have these people that are being way too ambitious and and trying to get these lofty things without putting in like the middle ground work. But then you also have the practitioner side where they're not communicating that you need to make it a lot more tangible to be able to achieve that long-term goal. Yeah, very well said. Um, I think to get back to the original question before I so rudely sideswiped <laughs> it. Um, so yeah, I mean, I I have I know for me, I have certain days like I do three lift days and three conditioning days every week. They're all really short. Um, the three lift days I can get done in like forty five or fifty minutes because. Yeah. yeah my, it's me and Michelle actually talked about this and it'll be the first episode of, of season two of our podcast, but like the way that trainers and physical therapists schedule works is like, it's usually on the hour. Yeah. So it's, I don't know why so many of us are concerned with doing like 75 minute or 90 minute workouts that need like two blocks of time. If we can fit no. something really good into one block of time. Yeah. So it's, and again, I'm like fortunate. I, you know, I, I essentially live in a gym. I work in a gym. Um, but I have my three lift days and I have my three like conditioning days. I have a sprint day, uh, like a high output aerobic day and like a, a long slow day. Nice. And I try to get all of those in like th- those aren't part- the sprint day I, f- I find fun, but like those aren't particularly fun. Like those are more fitness oriented days. Like in my lifting days, that's where I experiment with things like a Camperini deadlift or like some of the David Gray isometrics, as well as some tried and true things like a trap bar deadlift. Um, I'm certainly not trying to push like a lot of weight these days. Like I'm really, I'm, I'm using those, those gym days to build up all the other things I want to do. Cool. So I have those, those are kind of like the basic fitness things. Those don't go anywhere. Like even if my schedule gets really busy, I still try to do those. So I'm still like the same basic organism, but then when time allows, this is when I do things like ultimate Frisbee or climbing or backcountry skiing or trail running. Um, I would like to expand that eventually to like learning some kind of dance and learning some kind of combative. Like these are the things that we can yeah. do with our bodies that are really, really interesting, but aren't necessarily fitness. Yeah, no. And I, I love that as you span out, you're able to span out and do different things because again, kind of like we were mentioning earlier in the podcast, you have done these like baby steps of consistency of, you know, working out in the gym and, and now 
your body is capable of doing a lot of other things that ex- extend outside of like being in the weight room. So I think that's a really good approach. Yeah. Thank you. And I, you know, I think uh, if I'm, if it's during the week, like an ideal day of fitness would be sometime throughout the day, I have two 10 minute mobility things that I hit to kind of keep my hips and my back feeling good in the morning. That would probably be like a 45 or 50 minute lifting session. And then, uh, in the late afternoon, early evening, that would be something that's a little more playful. So like maybe climbing, um, eventually I would like that to be, like I said, like dancing or like a combative, like doing something like that. So I I think I am, I would be happiest doing two things in a day in addition to the mobility stuff. Um, but you know, when life gets busy, it's like the thing that I chuck is like that more like play-based thing and that's okay. I still maintain fitness qualities. I'm still sane. Yeah. Um, something that's always going through my mind when I'm lifting is like, all right, six movements, 18 sets, like an hour with movement prep and I'm done. Like, and, and, you know, even arm days, like those are done like in 25 to 30 minutes and it might sound crazy, but it's like, I superset things. And then, you know, I'm, I'm done like 18 total sets, you know, two to three times or three to four times a week. It's, it's plenty for my body. So, um, that's always like running in my mind when I'm working out. And that's why I'm able to get in there very efficiently and get out quick too. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, uh, to go back to something that we were chatting about before, like the, the, where should people start their fitness journey? I think that there's layers of this pyramid, but I think that there's also there's bi-directionality within those layers. Right. So it's like the, you, you know, you get good enough sleep and then you start to care about food preparation, like lower on the pyramid. But I think when you get to like really, really high levels of the pyramid, things like, like, uh, like climbing either indoor or outdoor is like a pretty shitty way to develop fitness. I think my, my, my climbing fans are going to get mad at me, but like I, <laughs> if someone wanted health and fitness outcomes, climbing would not be the first activity I would leave them. Certainly to. not. Like, yeah. Mar- marathon running would not be the first activity. Dance would not be the first activity. But if you have this thing that you're stoked on, even just one thing, like let's say it's ballroom dancing, then you kind of have like more stoke feeding into more of these baseline fitness qualities that might feed back into that thing. So like, I know, like when I competed in track, when I lived in Boston a couple of years ago, like I, th- that was sort of more of a fun activity for me. Cause I'm weird, but like, I knew that like <laughs> a lot of things that I did in the gym and in training, were going to feed into that. So it's like that it, it, it was this beautiful flowing yeah. between these two things with climbing. It's the same thing. It's like, I'm, I'm going to make sure I stay light. I'm going to make sure I stay relatively limber, relatively strong. And it's, I think if you go too long with just trying to develop fitness qualities, then you run the risk of turning into like a competitive runner or a power lifter, or just like a weirdo that does a lot of like rehab looking exercises. Yeah. And you never really get to see the culmination of like, Oh, the reason I do this is because I want to go play 30 minutes of ultimate Frisbee on Saturdays. I love that. That's, that's such a good point, man. Um, and I like how you linked all of that together. Uh, so I, I got two questions for you left, man. The, the first one is, and this is a very important question. If you well, actually, you do have your own podcast with Dr. Michelle. Um, <clears throat> who would be your top two favorite companies to reach out to you and say, we want to sponsor the podcast? And it can be any type of company. It doesn't have to be like fitness or health and wellness related. I, I really wanted to say athletic greens just because it seems like every podcast I listen to is sponsored by athletic <laughs> greens. That would be like a, a sign that me and Michelle's podcast have, have made it. Um, but no, you, you sent this over a couple you know, this, this was the only one I like wrote some things down. So I wasn't just like <laughs> shooting off the cuff, but, um, I really like, so this is a company that does advertise on a lot of podcasts, but liquid IV 
like the uh, the electrolyte thing okay. I, I think is is an excellently designed product like if you're hungover it's really effective if you're super dehydrated from like a crazy day outside or in the mountains or at high altitude it's really effective um my my wife is a my wife's a surgeon in training she's a surgical resident oh she did med school I, I will pass that on to her yeah. or, or was that, it was that a congrats to me for marrying a surgeon? A little bit of both actually, <laughs> but More uh, for her. So, so, so she did her medical training at, at Boston university. And one of her professors actually helped to develop liquid IV, the product. And so they have like this, uh, because there's dextrose in it, which is like a carbohydrate that gets really like absorbed really readily into cells. It pulls uh, sodium and potassium in there. Like, like, I think it's like eight times more effectively than if it was just like sodium potassium alone. So I think liquid IV is excellent. Um, it does have dextrose in it, which is a sugar. So like if people are doing low carb or fasting, then another product I really like is element L M N T, which is developed by, uh, I think Rob Wolf, like of kind of like paleo world fame, but that's a similar product just without dextrose. It doesn't work as well, but for, for instances where I'm slightly dehydrated, like maybe I've had two drinks the night before or something. Yeah. And I, and I don't want to commit to like having a meal in the morning. I, I think, I think elements excellent. Those would be, I'm, I'm cheating. I'm using that as one product. Oh, please. Yeah. Keep them coming. And then I think for my second one, there's. There's a lot of, uh, this is kind of, this is going to be out there, but there's, there's a lot of companies right now, like a lot of states have decriminalized mushrooms for recreational use. Um, and even more have kind of cleared studying psilocybe mushrooms and uh, psilocybin for the treatment of things like PTSD. So I think there's a lot of companies doing really important work in sort of like the mushroom space. I don't have a specific one, um, but I think in the same way that cannabis, you know, was kind of off the radar 10 or 15 years ago, I think in the next five or 10 years, we're going to see a popularization of like a lot of these companies that, that, that deal in mushrooms. And, you know, I think it's, it's really, really important work to be able to have these tools for people that are suffering from anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress disorder. But even from a selfish perspective, it's like, it's pretty cool to have an option to, you know, have an intoxicant that isn't alcohol that, yeah. you know, do, doesn't have a lot of the, the drawbacks of, of alcohol. And I think when you look and kind of see what, what cannabis did here in Colorado, it's like, now you have a lot of people that don't drink that just you know, smoke a little bit and go out and still have a good time. So I, I think it's really, I think, I think that space is really interesting in a variety of ways and it's kind of something to watch over the next five, 10, 15 years. Yeah. I, I think you hit the nail on the head right there um, in terms of the, you know, your, your second choice. And there's also a place in Denver um, that you can go to, I believe they like give you all the information about it, but they don't sell it yet. But yeah. Um, I was in Denver for lane eight red rocks, like last oh, night. Hell, dude, I love lane eight, man, <laughs> dude. I, huge I have, fan, I have a friend i was I, I have a friend that was at that show we were talking about it like three nights ago oh my gosh yeah um the greatest um last question is what inspires you man um lane eight <laughs> <laughs> same <laughs> uh, I, I really i looked at going to that show tickets were so so expensive by the time i looked but he he was like my favorite find of two years ago i yeah. don't if i have to do like any kind of deep work where i'm like like really have to think hard, um, not writing, but like ingest material. Lane eight is absolutely my favorite artist to listen oh, to. He has a one hour set on Grand Lake, Colorado that I listen to all the time. You know, which one I'm Dude, talking I, about? I, I literally put, so I have, there's two live sets I put on all the time. Whenever, whenever me and my wife have people over, 
um the oh god i'm gonna blank here it's uh oh Ruf, rufus de soul joshua yeah. tree the joshua tree which, set yeah which is amazing credit to my Great. wife for finding that and then that lane eight uh at grand lake is fantastic yeah, so good. and my- i love it because like he's having such a good time the entire time and there's no one yeah. there it's just him in the water on the boat yeah he's doing these with his like finger guns my biggest uh thing is like four or five months ago it, it would run through the hour but now there's like little advertisements in it so it breaks my flow a little bit but at least it still exists it also took me an embarrassingly long time to realize that that was a sunrise set and not a sunset set <laughs> i'm like this is weird i feel like the sunset's been like the same for a while if anything it's lighter <laughs> Oh, it's embarrassing uh, um, that I haven't noticed that. What inspires me? So th- this is the other one that I had wrote, written, <clears throat> wrote, wrote some wrote. things down yeah. for. Um, and again, God, we're going to like we're ending this podcast on a really weird note with mushrooms and death. But I'm going to say that like mortality and the fact that everyone's time here is relatively finite, including my own. I think that's something that. I don't know that I, I, I like to think about every day because it just makes sure that you don't really waste any of this yeah. time that we have here. Um, I think that life would lose a lot of meaning if it were to go on forever, you know, and I, love I, don't, that, know if I don't know if we're going to get into like a, a digital immortality type thing soon, but like, I, I, I question what that would kind of mean for human contact. And then kind of going with that, it's like from a, from a professional standpoint, how can I do something that's meaningful to other people that, that helps them, which I, I feel really fortunate to be in a field where I get to do that. And then more selfishly, how can I make enough money that I can finance the type of life and the type of experiences that I want, um, for me, for my family, for my wife, uh, maybe, maybe for a kid, if we have one. And then physically, I think it's an extension of that where it's, uh, I want to, experience the most with my body, enjoy the most with my body over the maximum amount of years that I can. Yeah. So I think I'm not really interested in training myself into a nub anymore. It's like, what's the least amount that I can do from a gym, fitness, running, conditioning perspective that will let me still do all the wild, like let me still outrun a 22 year old on an ultimate frisbee field let me still like run up a 14,000 foot mountain ski like an awesome backcountry line like how can I still enjoy these things with the minimal amount of wear and tear on my joints knowing that probably to continue to do the things that I love I'm going to be in some some amount of discomfort with my joints like most of the time that's just kind of my lot but it's like if I can keep my hip pain at a one out of ten but do all these amazing things uh, that's what, that's what inspires me. Like it's, it's, it's sure as fuck. Not like, how do I improve my hip internal rotation to meet some kind of arbitrary standard or, uh, you know, can, can I run a sub four minute mile? Can I deadlift four or five? Like maybe those last two things used to be big things for me, but now, you know, kind of getting into my thirties here, it's, it's more about just how do I experience the, the beauty of, uh, experiencing the physical world with other people, experiencing the natural world. Like that's what gets me stoked. Dude. I love that. Um, thanks for coming on. That was such a great way to end the podcast. And you're the like the second or third guest that has mentioned that uh, Janelle from the June method from New York. She mentioned the same thing of like mortality and like um, like living every day to your fullest. So thanks for coming on. Can I'd love to have you on at some other point, man. Uh, would you be open to that? 
Oh yeah, absolutely. Happy to come on for a round two. This was uh, this was a ton of fun. Yeah, man. Um, well, thanks everyone for listening to another episode, and we'll see you on the other side.